First Peter, if you have your Bibles, you can open them up to First uh, Peter. We'll be in the first, so oh, let me see here, nine verses or so of First Peter this morning. And the reason that I chose First Peter is partly because of uh, all of the things that um, Mark was praying for. First Peter is a, uh, a book about hope, and it's a book about um, suffering. We talked about the situation that First Peter was written in. We talked about last week all of the um, uh, situation that Peter was in in Rome in terms of being in prison. And we talked about the situation under Nero. Remember Emperor Nero? It's not a happy time. He's a bit crazy. Uh, there was incredible persecution on the Christians because of the burning of Rome that was blamed on the Christians and that persecution had spread. And so now we have Peter, a uh, disciple of Jesus, uh, near the end of his life, he didn't realize it maybe at the time, but probably in jail in Rome at the time, within a matter of months, less than a year probably, if the dating of this letter is correct, he's going to be crucified um, along with his wife. And uh, he's writing to these Christians, uh, as mentioned in the first verse there, he's writing to these Christians in Asia Minor and who are under this persecution that's flowing out from Rome. But apart from that, he also goes on to speak about slaves and masters and husbands and wives and all the different areas of our life. It's not just some big bad empire oppressing Christians, but just all the areas in our life where we suffer and how to bring hope to that suffering. And so that's what we're getting into uh, this morning. Let me open up in a word of prayer. Father God, I just pray this morning as we look into your word and uh, the writing of your apostle Peter lands on our hearts uh, that we would be uh, open to it. Father, um, just, uh, yeah, just, um, when this is a church and we are a people um, in, this, in this building and in this county and in this world. Uh, your children are people that need uh, to hear this message and to fix their hope on the right things. And so I pray that that would come across clearly this morning and that we would be submitted to your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So people can't live without hope. Everybody lives with a hope in something. Some people are hoping that they, you know, some guys are hoping that they meet the right woman or the right man if you're a woman. Um, some are hoping that they will find a job right now or they're just hoping that they won't lose the job that they have. Right? Some students this week are hoping that they pass their exams. Um, you know, or the marks that they're going to get are going to be enough to get them into the university or the college that they want to get into. You know, they're hoping in that. Um, you know, or that they'll be accepted into the university or college they've applied to. And, and those are sort of small hopes, but, but these little hopes that we have move us from day to day. And many of us, I understand, as we've prayed about, have far more profound hopes, right? Hopes that our marriages will improve. That prodigal children will return. Um, hope that, um, you know, spots on the x-ray are just a shadow or that the treatments will be effective. We're dealing with hope from day to day and we are putting our hopes in these things that are sometimes trivial but then sometimes profound. And, and all of that to say is that you don't live without hope. Where, where hope disappears, life sort of comes to an end. 
right? Hope, life doesn't progress in the absence of hope. We've all seen the results and too many have been touched personally by the life ending in the hopelessness of suicide. We've seen it near the end of life in older couples, you know, where where they've lived together, married for 50 years, they're the, they're the hope of each other's life, and, and one passes away, and then it's not too many months later until the other spouse dies. We've seen that where that hope is lost, life seems to decrease, you know, or wartime imprisonment. Why some prisoners could continue day after day after day the routine of captivity for years on end, and yet other prisoners one day would suddenly just lie down in the yard in the mud and refuse to get up. And no matter how many encouraging words or no matter how many beatings they suffered, they simply laid there in the mud hopeless. And so there's this sense that hope is intrinsic to life, that without hope, our life deteriorates, our life fails. And as Dante, the writer, wrote in his depiction of hell, he put the sign at the beginning, and he wasn't wrong. Remember what that sign says at the beginning of Dante's hell, abandon hope, all you who enter. So hope is intrinsically tied to our life. And Peter has something to say about hope. And it's been noticed by a couple of Bible commentators that if you wanted to, you could take Peter and Paul and John, the three big writers of the New Testament, um, between Peter, Paul, and John, they wrote most of it. And Paul being the apostle of faith, John being the apostle of love, and Peter the apostle of hope. And as you study their writing, that would not be too far. That'd be pretty accurate, right? If you, if you want to deepen your faith, you go to Paul, and you get the doctrines of Paul, and he deepens your faith in who God is. And if, and if you want to work on your love nature, you go to John. He's the, he's the disciple of love. And John, in his gospels and in his letters, emphasizes love so much. But if you need hope, you read Peter. And so that's why we're doing Peter. Because we're people that need hope. And Peter, as we saw last week, was a man that knew about false hope and restoration to a true hope. Peter knew what it meant to be hopeless. He found himself wallowing in that situation after denying Jesus three times and giving up his discipleship and abandoning the whole thing and returning to fishing. Peter was a guy who had had finished. He was done with hope in this Messiah that he had followed for three years. And Peter knew by firsthand experience what it was to have that hopelessness restored to hope. And then Peter was also a man that knew very well what it meant to be hopeless in hopeless situations, as he probably was at the writing of this letter, in prison for close to a year and waiting for the most powerful man in the world to decide his fate. And so he knew what it was to be in a situation that was he was out of control of and, and was essentially hopeless. And yet in that hopeless situation, in the Mamertine prison, in Rome, under Nero, waiting for whatever this maniac was going to do to him, Peter writes a letter like this, a letter that just brims with confidence. And so that's the Peter that has something to say. And so we read in 1 Peter 1, verses 3 to 9, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, 
so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That is some heavy stuff to start a letter with. This is like verse 3, sentence number 2. Peter is not even two sentences into his letter to these suffering Christians and he launches into a paragraph that is just dense with theology and doctrine about who God is and what God did for us, right? And that fact alone is a lesson to us. The very first lesson that I get from Peter, and I don't want to elaborate it on it for the sake of time right now this morning, but I don't want to skip past it either, the first lesson from Peter to me is that doctrine matters and theology matters, right? Peter knows what Christians need and they don't need some helpful platitude. Every cloud has a silver lining, you know, hang in there. Um, things are bound to get better. Turn that frown upside down. You know, there is no sort of cat poster motivational message here from Peter, right? You know, He doesn't even say things like, you know, God will work this to your good, which is true. But is that where Peter goes in the second sentence of his letter? He goes straight to doctrine and theology because he knows that what Christians really need at the bedrock is to know God and know what God did for them, right? We don't need a pat on the back and a helpful platitude to make us feel better, really, What we need is doctrine and truth about God. And so when we're struggling with discouragements and we're suffering under the guilt of our own sin or we're struggling with the hardships of the world or the abuses of evil, we need the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so that's what Peter immediately aims his laser on. First thing in the letter, he pulls out all this doctrine and all this theology to hit these Christians between the eyes with the truth of who God is and what he's done. And this is important because some of you are here today and you think that if only you could be better Christians, you wouldn't be having the problems that you're having in your marriage or with your children or with your job or getting over grief or in loneliness or whatever problems you have in life. Your hope is that if you could just be better Christians, things will somehow get better. And the bad news, I start with the bad news, is that if you're here and that's what you're thinking, then your hope is in the wrong place. There's one place for Christian hope. The one place for Christian hope is not that things are hard now and they will somehow get easier. It's not that things are bad now, but they will somehow get better. That the problems that we have now will go away. That if we just do something differently, things will be better. That is not where our hope is placed. That's not where we get our hope from. And that's not where Peter goes to provide hope for these Christians. So if we come here today tired or disappointed or fearful or confused or angry or bitter or defeated or without hope and you're looking for some hope somewhere in in if things could just get better or I could be better then things will be more hopeful, that's in the wrong place. But then Peter has good news for you because Peter says your hope is not in you being a better Christian or your situation improving or bad things getting better or good things or, or, or tough things getting easier. He says your hope is in who God is and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and what he's done for you. And that's secure. There's a a neat quote from John Piper. And he says, 
I love the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, not because they turn my life into a string of successes, but they keep me from collapsing under a string of failures. That's where the hope lies. Not that our life will become a string of successes, but that we will have strength to endure under a string of failures. And that's the essence of the good news of Peter. So now what is Peter saying about hope in this letter? First of all, he says it's the mercy or the grace of God and what he's giving to us in verse 3 there at the end. It says, according to his great mercy, he, that's God the Father, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So God has graciously done something for us is where Peter started. God is merciful, and because of his great mercy, he's done something for us. So first and foremost, the reality of the grace and mercy of God is the source of our hope, right? And so we can ask ourselves, would we start our letter of encouragement that way from our experience? If we were Peter and we were sitting in whatever our form of jail was, waiting to be executed, or as we sit in our broken marriage, or as we sit and ponder our prodigal children who are away, running the wrong way, or we consider the prospects of our health, and would we start a letter to ourselves first and foremost on the great mercy of God? Is that the first place you'd go writing a letter? It's the first place Peter goes. He says, the first thing you have to understand is the mercy of God. Lesson number one from Peter is you have to know the nature of God the Father, that he is great in mercy, and everything now that Peter is going to teach comes and flows out of this mercy from God. That's the picture I want you to get. He starts with the mercy of God, the grace of God, and that's like a fountainhead, okay? And so I want you to see that this mercy of God is like a fountain, and everything that Peter is going to teach is going to flow out of that mercy like a fountain. He's going to pour out all this truth out of the mercy of God that's going to follow in the next few verses. And that great mercy is not just the fountain or the source of all that comes next. It is also the fountain and the source of our hope. Okay, Because all the doctrine and all the truth that Peter unloads, he's unloading it because it's the source of our hope. So you can picture the mercy of God like a fountain, like a fountainhead, or the, or the, the front of a river. And it is truth flowing out of it, and it is hope flowing out of this fountainhead. And it's the hope, it's the source of our hope and our mercy because it's by grace that we have all that follows us in Christ. And why is that hope? It's hope because we don't have to earn it. That's the other piece that comes along sort of packaged in there built into the fact that it's grace and mercy. The fact that it's grace means that we don't have to earn it. So we immediately have hope in the grace of God because it is grace and we don't earn it, right? We don't qualify for it. Everything that Peter is about to say that we have in Christ is given by God's mercy and not by our effort of being better Christians or of being better people. And so God's grace is hope for us because it is exactly grace. Look what he says there. Peter's going to go on to say that God caused us to be born again. God caused it. We didn't qualify for it. We didn't earn it. If we had to qualify for his mercy or earn his mercy, there wouldn't be not be very much hope for us, would there? Would there be any hope in what Peter has to say here if we had to qualify for the mercy of God or we had to earn the grace of God? No, because we would all fall short. But there is hope here because God causes us to be born again and because it is grace, it's not earned or qualified for. And if you're still not getting the message, if Peter's still not sure whether his people have got it, that he's talking about grace and mercy and that there's hope in that, not only is it the mercy of God and that God caused it to happen, he doesn't even get done the sentence before he gives you a whole new picture of it again just to drive it home. Before he gets to the end of the sentence, he says, what is it that we've been caused to be born again into? He says, 
that we have all that we have through Jesus as an inheritance, verse 4. Do you earn an inheritance? No. An inheritance is given to you. Right? Is there some effort you have to put into an inheritance? No, you just come into an inheritance not by any effort of your own, but simply by who you are and receiving it. Nothing could be easier than an inheritance. And so Peter is getting across here that the hope that we have and everything that we have in Christ is by God's mercy, that it's caused by God, and that it's inheritance. So our, our, our first level of hope is that we don't have to earn any of this, that we don't have to qualify for it, that God pours it out on those who are believers in him, on those who have faith in him. And so Peter grounds our hope on this double-edged reminder that God is merciful in case we've forgotten, that God is gracious in case we've begun to grumble and second-guess that he is gracious, and secondly, that we have what we have through God's grace in case we started to despair of earning or performing our way into some future hope that God has for us. Peter says, don't feel hopeless about earning it. Don't feel hopeless about the nature of God. He is gracious, and you already qualify. Secondly, he says that we've been caused to be born again to a living hope. So specifically, what does Peter say about the grace of God? So God is gracious, yes, but then what has flowed out of that grace? What is flowing out of that fountain of his grace? He says we've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We were hopeless. This is the picture, right? You were hopeless, and now we have hope. And we don't have our old dead hope, which obviously wasn't working, or else we wouldn't be hopeless. But now we have a new living hope, not a generic wishful hope. It's a living hope. And that's an odd phrase, isn't it, when you think about it? What's a living hope? Why do you apply the word living to hope? Hope, How is hope alive? You know, when you start to think about that, well, maybe it's a living hope because it gives life. It's a living hope because it's life-changing. It's life-restoring, right? It's life-transforming. It's the type of hope that isn't dead. It isn't doing nothing. It's active in doing something. And Peter knows about living hope, right? Just think of the author here. Peter had lost hope in this world, and he had lost hope in himself. Peter followed Jesus all over Palestine in the hope that Jesus was the Messiah, right? He had his hope in Jesus. He left his fishing business and he went to follow Jesus in hope. And like many Jews of his time, Peter was looking for the day that the Messiah would come and his hope was that this Messiah would overthrow Rome. The Roman, you know, evil Rome would be thrown out and Jerusalem would be restored and Israel would be restored and the law would be obeyed and God would be worshipped. But then his Messiah gets crucified, put in a tomb, right? And Peter, Rome was still there. And Peter saw it all happen right in front of him. And he denies his Messiah. And then he goes back to fishing. Just throws the last three years of discipleship out. Says, forget it, I'm going back fishing. Peter knows what it is, okay? Peter knows what it is to lose hope. He lost hope in himself because on the night that Jesus was betrayed, despite all of his confidence to the contrary, Peter denied him. Right, And he faced his own weakness and he faced his own failure of his own courage and the lack of his own confidence. So Peter knows what it is to be hopeless in his soul. And then Peter gets this amazing news of the gospel, the good news. And, he, and, and after he gets that good news of the gospel and, and he, he lives out the news of the gospel... And and the news of the gospel for him is the women returning from the tomb. And when they went to the tomb to anoint the body of Jesus, you remember the body was gone. 
And they come running back and they say, we went to the tomb and the body was gone and there was angels and Peter and John and they start running and, you know, John gets there first because he's bragging and, you know, but then he's not as confident as, as Peter. Peter finally catches up to John huffing and puffing, but he goes into the tomb first, right? Peter goes, he dives right in there. He wants to see what's going on because he's a man who needs hope. And so Peter goes into the tomb looking for hope and he's looking for it in the right place now in the promise of the Messiah's resurrection. And the Apostle Paul says it this way, if we have died with Christ, will we not also live with him? And so now, decades later, Peter is writing this letter that we have a living hope. Peter says, I've seen living hope with my own eyes. Why? Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is not a dead hope. This is literally a living hope. I saw my Messiah die. I saw him crucified, and then I saw the empty tomb, and I saw him raised from the dead, and I saw the living Christ. And so he's writing now to these Christians saying, you have a living hope that changes lives, transforms lives, restores lives. And eventually Peter's life was changed because of this new hope that he had. And Peter was transformed. He was no longer denying Christ. He was in front of the Sanhedrin preaching Christ. And Peter understands this himself. He is alive and he has his hope alive and his faith alive because of the hope in Jesus Christ. The hope in Jesus Christ changes lives. It transforms lives. And it's through the resurrection of the dead. Right? The verse there that Peter says is, you are born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So it's all about Christ and his resurrection where that new hope comes from. And so this is where we have our hope in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Christian hope is not that if we're just good enough Christians, then our marriages will be better. And if we're just good enough Christians, then our children will stay on the straight and narrow. And if we just are good enough Christians, then our job will make us lots of money and our friends will love us and we will have all that we want, when we want, all in good health, all the time. That is not the Christian hope. Our hope is in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and in our resurrection because of his. And then listen to verse 4. This is where Peter really hits home. This is where our hope is secure. This is where our hope is found. He says we are born again to this living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith and salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. Peter is saying it as explicitly as he can. Your hope is not here. right? Your hope is not in this life. Stop looking to the next job or the next raise or you know the next whatever for your hope. Stop looking for that for your hope because your hope is not here. It's in the resurrection that Jesus guarantees your future resurrection and all of the blessings that are connected to that resurrection will not be experienced apart from heaven and apart from all those blessings of the resurrection. So you say, well, well then that's great. What does that mean for me today? Right? If it's all in the future, where's my hope today? What's Peter doing here? He's giving me all this truth, all this doctrine. How's it helping me? You know, It means you have a life-changing, life-giving hope if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. Right? Verse 5 says, these things are being kept for you, being guarded through faith. It's in your faith that you have this living hope. And if you have faith in Jesus Christ, you have a hope that nobody can touch and nobody can take away because it's reserved for you in heaven. It's unfading, it's imperishable, it's undefiled, it's kept in heaven and God is guarding you for it and nothing in this life can touch it. It's impervious to any threat. 
And the connection that Peter is making is that your joy in this life as Christians is tied directly to your rock-solid certainty and your grasping the reality of that hope. That your hope is not set... If your hope is not set on that, then your joy will be diminished now. Let me put it this way. Your final healing, your final hope is as far away as your resurrection from the dead. And you think, Paul, that's a downer, <laughs> right? You're saying, you're saying it's, it's way at the end, you know? Or it's not until I go through all of that until I get to my final hope. That sounds depressing. Because you're thinking, I want to get some healing right now. My life is hard right now. I want things to get easier now. I want things to be better now. I want joy now. God has been hard and bad, and I'd like things to get better. But Peter says that's not, to these Christians, he's saying that's not where your hope is. He's not talking about anything in this life. Peter goes immediately to the resurrection of Jesus and to the imperishable, undefiled inheritance that has secured for us. For some of you, things have been bad. And in God's kindness, they will get better. They will get a little easier. And for some of you, things have been bad, and they will improve. But for others of us, things may get worse. But no matter where we are in our circumstances, Peter is trying to teach us here, that is not where our hope is. Our hope is not that things are going to get better. Our hope is not that things are going to keep improving. Right? Our hope is not in the fact that if things are bad, they're going to get better. If things are hard, they're going to get easier. And our hope is not diminished. This is the important flip side of it. Our hope is also not diminished if things are good now, but they get worse. Right? If things are bad are, are better now, but they, they get bad. That won't cause us to lose our hope because that's not where our hope is to be as Christians. Peter is coming at this from one angle. Our hope is in what who God is, what Christ has done, and our inheritance, which is protected for us in heaven. Your healing is as far away as your resurrection of the dead. However, your invincible joy of hope is as close as the risen Jesus. Okay, so even though our final healing is in heaven, our joy is as invincible as the as what Jesus has done in that hope that's stored for us. Our resurrection hope bears the fruit of joy now. The resurrection then is the giving of hope and joy today because it's secure for us in heaven. And so you can throw yourself into life and know that all of the defeats of this life, no matter how painful they are, are not the final defeat, but that a final victory awaits. And the success of this life are not your final blessing. That no matter how good this life gets, that's not as good as it gets. And you can serve and you can hope and you can love and you can know that this is not the final hope. And so I can have joy and hope now because nothing can take away my inheritance that is secured by Jesus' resurrection. And is that where your hope is? Or are you more like me, right? Always distracted by and looking at some temporary hope in this life, some interim hope, looking at something now in this world and clinging to that as my hope, right? That's how I get sometimes. I think if I can just, you know, get to the next week, if I can just get to the next vacation, if I can just get to the next whatever, you know, that's my hope. Or if things could just get a little bit better here, or if if I could just... Like if, if things were just a little easier here, that's where my hope would be. Am I clinging to some frail hope in my circumstances in this world other than, as Peter points, to the imperishable, unspoiled, 
undefiled, absolutely guaranteed inheritance that I have in heaven through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because if that's my hope, and it is completely untouchable, then what, what do I care about the circumstances in this world? If my eyes are on that, then why am I worried about whether my, I get my next vacation or not, or whether I get the next pay raise or not? You know, Those things are temporary, various trials of this life. They're not where Christian hope resides. So don't put your hope in the wrong place. There is no joy there. In the, in the end, neither the good things or the bad things have any hope because all of our real hope is awaiting for us in heaven. And then just really quickly here at the end, because I want to leave time for a little story here, is just notice that this hope is double-guarded. It's not only imperishable in heaven, it says there in the verse, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, And you think, that's great, I got that hope, but am I going to get there? It's still hopeless if I don't get there. So God double guards it for us. And Peter says, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So not only is your hope secured, but God says, "I'm by my power, I'm guarding your faith so that you're going to receive that hope. Okay? So so Peter's just doubling up the assurance of our hope. That it's there and it's secure and it's undefiled and it's in heaven and nothing is ever going to touch it. But then not only that, you're going to get there because God's power is guarding you through faith to get it. So it's absolutely double guaranteed. God's got you covered. Peter doesn't leave out any piece of truth or any piece of doctrine that would cause you to stumble in your joy or cause you to doubt. He covers all the bases. He says your faith is guarded by God's power. It won't fail. And your inheritance is secure in heaven. And your faith here is guarded by the power of God. So you have no hopelessness argument. You cannot get around it. You have hope. Just take joy in it. So you're backed into a corner. You must have hope. You must have joy. Because your hope is guaranteed both ways. And this hope results in a glory to God and a present joy in ourself. He says in verse 8 there, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. I just want to tell you a little story while we have some time. good friend of mine, um, Andrew, Andrew Rozalowski, a uh, good friend of mine back in Guelph, and he was. Uh, I went to Ukraine with him. Should have had a picture. Went to Ukraine with him on a mission trip. He's Ukrainian heritage and was learning Russian. And he and his wife were going to be missionaries to the Ukraine. And I went to Ukraine with him, spent a week with him there, and we we're just really good friends. And uh, he was a non-believer, grew up sort of nominally Catholic, and uh, came to Christ in college or in university. And uh, it was actually interesting because on that Ukraine trip, he had a blood clot in the back of his knee, and blood clots often do indicators of leukemia. So uh, Andrew had leukemia. And uh, went through the treatment, got better, was in remission for a while, came back, and he passed away um, last Christmas time, roughly about a year ago. And uh, so that's Andrew, Andrew Rozalowski. And all through the trial of his leukemia, uh, right up to his passing at Christmas while he was waiting for bone marrow transplant. Um, he was blogging on Facebook and stuff like that, and he was writing. And I just want to share with you um, just one of his final 
It wasn't his last blog, but it was one of his last Facebook posts. And it was Andrew um, in the hospital bed, reflecting on his life, reflecting on his faith, and where his hope was. And you could pretty much take it right out of 1 Peter, I think. But this is what he writes. And he writes it as a, as a poem, if you can imagine, a, a sort of a one, one, one line per poem. Nine years ago tonight, I repented of my sins. This is the anniversary of his salvation. I repented of my sins. I knelt at his feet. I wept for joy. I trusted Jesus. I believed on the gospel. I was called by God. I was forgiven by God, was transferred into his kingdom, was made free, was adopted as a child of God, was justified, was redeemed, began to follow Jesus, died to self, was given hope, was made alive in Christ, was renewed in heart, was given the spirit, sin became disgusting, Christ became glorious. Nine years later, in the face of possible death, Christ remains glorious. Christ remains my joy. Christ remains my hope. What Andrew is writing there is what Peter's talking about. He's saying that the joy that we can have as Christians is rock solid, established, not in our present circumstances, not that our marriage is going to get better, not that we are going to get healthier, not that our children are going to return to the church or come back to God, not that anything in this world is going to be different. Our rock-solid foundation of our joy, Peter says, is that God is merciful, and out of that mercy flows this truth about Jesus and all the things that Jesus has done for us, and it is established an inheritance for those who believe in heaven that is imperishable, and that our joy today is established in that, and it brings glory to God. That is where Christian joy is found, not in being better Christians so that things get better for us, because they very well might get worse. That's good news for Christians. That is the good news of where our joy is founded. Now that's good news for Christians, but what if you're here today and you're not a Christian? Do I have any good news for you today? Well, what does the Apostle Paul say about those that are without Christ? In Ephesians 2.12, it says that apart from Christ, you are strangers to this covenant and have no hope and you are without God in the world. So if you don't know Christ and you're a stranger to this covenant, the bad news is you don't have this hope. The good news is it's free. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to qualify for it. You just have to believe on the graciousness of God, that Jesus is who he says he is, the Son of God, and that through Jesus you qualify for all of this. When you have faith and you turn your heart and your life over, to following the God that is there and the God that is seeking you. And your hope does no longer have to be in the next paycheck or in the next great thing that you think is going to happen or winning the lottery. You see that thing in the paper? <laughs> guy missed winning half of $26 million by seven seconds. <laughs> Did you see that? Anybody see that? Printed out the ticket seven seconds late. 
missed on 13 million. Boy, he's got to live with that. That's not where our hope is, right? Your hope is not in the next six-pack, right? Your hope is not just getting to the weekend so you can drink it away. Your hope is not just getting to the next vacation so you can forget your troubles. Your hope is not in the next whatever you put in your arm or smoke or whatever you're doing to cling to some kind of hope. Your hope doesn't have to be in that. Your hope can be in Jesus and in an imperishable inheritance. Because even if life is good, and so many of us in North America are riding a high tide of a stable economy and safe laws and human rights and low population and good governance, I mean, historically speaking, we're living the dream here. And so we think we have hope, but our hope is not in those things. Eventually, it all fades away, and there's only one hope left in heaven for us. So some of you today need to know that. If your hope and your joy has not been in Jesus, then I want you to come and talk to me after the service. You know, or call my phone or text me. I put the stuff up there. Take a step towards Jesus and put your hope in Jesus. And he will give you a hope no matter what your circumstances are. We're about to go into communion. I'm just going to pray before we go to communion. All the Christians here are going to be coming to God to give him thanks for what Jesus has done on the cross. If your hope is not in Jesus today, now would be a perfect time to just talk to him and see if he's not there waiting for you. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. Thank you for, excuse me, the testimony of my friend Andrew. For that simple Facebook post that speaks volumes about where his hope was placed. Father, thank you for the words of the Apostle Peter on which Andrew built that hope, among many other words of your scripture. Thank you for your son Jesus who established this hope for us so that we don't have to earn it and we don't have to qualify for it. Father God, I pray for us as a people, myself included, that we would stop putting our hope on false things, that we would be hoping in our retirement fund or we would be hoping in our career or we would be hoping in uh, our partner in marriage to make us happy or we would be hoping in the statistics of medical science to um, you know, end up on the right side of the statistics. We know the statistics, Lord, but we don't put our hope in statistics. We put our hope in you. We don't put our hope in this life being awesome and Jesus coming into our life and making everything better for us. We put our hope in the inexpressible joy that no matter what happens in, the, in this life, our true inheritance and our true future is untouchable and that we are guarded all the way to it from today to our grave by the power of God, that you will cause us to persevere in our faith. Father, thank you. Help us, Lord. We are foolish and distracted. Help us to put our joy in the right place so it's unshakable. And we can write Facebook posts like Andrew does and know where our hope really lies. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.